Hi, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madhvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week we'll be discussing a different trend or topic so you can stay informed the easy way. So, Madhvi, what's the topic this week? So today we are joined by Anja Walczak, who is going to talk to us about the Polish elections, which are happening today on the day we released this podcast. Anja is a Polish woman who is currently pursuing her master's in laws, specializing in European law at Leiden University in the Netherlands. It's a really, really big deal, these Polish elections, especially for you, I guess, As a lawyer and a woman, how are you feeling? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you girls for having me here. To be honest, I'm very stressed sometimes. I'm very anxious about it. But I try to like approach it in an irrational way because there are a lot of like arguments going on in Poland that those are the most important elections after the fall of communism. And of course, they're very important. I feel like we will say that about every election because every election's are very crucial for us as a democracy or society that aspire to be democratical. On the other hand, I really do feel those elections are very crucial, not only for Poland, but as Europe in general. You can see since a couple of years, Poland, like a bit going further away from the democratic values that we know and admire in European Union. So Poland became a bit of like a problematic sibling in European Union and uh, those elections there are a lot of things at stake but I think the most important thing that is at stake is actually the democratic values and whether or not Poland will remain democracy yeah it's actually a bit scary because there is this VDEM report from like 2020 which basically says that Poland and Hungary are in like a top 10 fastest autocratizing countries in the world. So like basically European Union is a home to two fastest growing autocracies in the world. And also like 20% of European Union is also autocratizing with Poland and Hungary among those countries. So yes, it's a, it's a, Interesting time to be alive. Probably everyone says that, but I, for me personally, it's very interesting. A lot of things to work on and a lot of things to to see. Yeah, I would say pay close attention to the to the elections today and what the outcome of them will be. Yeah, we actually did an episode with a Hungarian person about the Hungary elections, and Hungary was downgraded from a democracy to a autocratic something or like yeah 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 yeah. it's like they're they're all like yeah. political science use all of those fancy words to describe <laughs> it <laughs> but like yeah exactly and some of what is has was happening in hungary you know this overtaking of some of the institutions that ensure democracy is also happening in poland and there's a fancy word for it that i just learned recently it's called state capture oh yes Yes. And because you're like a top law expert, <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk about like what is state capture and how does it apply in Poland and why does this actually really genuinely make these elections just really, really important? Yeah, the state capture, as you say, like starts from like taking over the institutions. So the democratic institutions as we know them. And uh, in case of Poland, the first thing that PIS government, so the ruling party that now has a majority in the government, what they did back in 2015, they started from capturing those top courts. 
So the Constitutional Court, the Supreme Court, and also a lot of like smaller kind of like committees that associate the judges. How did they capture them? How basically it's so interesting because they do them somehow in legitimate ways. So, you know, the parliament mm -hmm. meets, right? They put forward a vote and they vote on it. And they say, okay, that's how it is now. Let's say now we elect new judges to the constitutional tribunal. So they say, okay, those are our candidates. We put them forward and we elect those. So let's say they use the legitimate tools to do it. So the process are like normal, right? As a democracy will do, but the means of how they kind of like abuse this power. I think that's, that's basically a core of it. And the thing is that it's, it's so complicated, actually, how this, this whole process goes. So I think we can go back to, I think it was like 2015, 2016, when they, for instance, introduced in the Supreme Court this new retirement age for judges. So basically what they say is like, okay, now we introduce this retirement age. Now everyone who is above 65, you're going to end your job and we don't care that you still have your mandate to serve as a judge. Now you're going to end it because we introduced this new rule. And basically what this rule aimed to do is remove all the judges that were elected during the opposition time when they were in the government and instead of them put, let's say, like their people into it that they know they're kind of going to rule or, or lead the Supreme Court in line of what the party wished to. And the Supreme Court has quite a significant role in Poland. Well, for instance, it can judge on the validity of the elections. So let's say mm -hmm. the elections won't go as the party wishes. The Supreme Court can call it into question and say, hey, guys, actually, those elections were not fair and we need to do them again. So if you capture those very courts at the very top, you can really much control what is happening in the country and they try to you know do it in a legitimate way but the but the content of it it's so harmful this actually really didn't work out because the european union and the european commission kind of woke up and say hi guys this is not okay let's not do this but still it it uh, we still have politicized courts and um another thing is for instance our constitutional courts right that i think the most example that was very loud in the media are the abortion law in poland which is Again, it was it happened because of the ruling of constitutional tribunal and the constitutional tribunal have all the means and right to do so. And you can go to a constitutional tribunal and ask, hey, is this in accordance with our constitution, right? And then the constitutional tribunal says yes or no, and then put their reasons behind it. But because they're politically elected judges in the constitutional tribunal, you know which kind of ruling and which kind of outcome of those questions will be. And this questions about abortion was also put forward quite strategically, one might argue, you know, to kind of stir it because they didn't necessarily want to do the vote in the parliament to change the rules on abortion. But they were like, okay, well, yeah, let's ask if the abortion laws that we have are in accordance with the constitution. I think it's a very complicated way of also arguing it legally. But yeah, yeah, they, you know, there is a ruling of Polish constitutional tribunal, which basically completely paralyzed access to safe abortion in Poland. And it all happened because the government politicized those institutions and undermined their democratic role. So I remember when the abortion laws were passed, which is basically that women can't have access to abortion at all in Poland right now. And there was a massive, massive protest. Polish women were protesting. 
So how do you think this will affect, you know, this anger will continue into this election or has it been forgotten? And also, are women for the the ruling party still and why? Like, why is abortion so politicized, actually? What are the political reasons or background to it, do you think? I think it's a very big question. So maybe we can start, like, how it was in Poland with abortion. Because until, like, the beginning of 2021... There were three reasons why a woman would get a safe abortion. So first was when the woman's life or health is endangered because of the pregnancy. The second was when the fetus life or health is endangered because of pregnancy. And the third was when the woman pregnancy is a result of a, of a criminal act. So those were three rules, which already, in my opinion, were very restrictive. And they resulted from kind of this compromise between the state and the church after the fall of communism. Because actually during communism, I think it's kind of interesting, but during communism, there was also fourth rule, which basically said if because of your social status, uh, you you cannot have a child. So whatever, you know, you don't have money, you don't have means. The abor- abortion was also allowed. So because of like the shift later, you know, the church play a bit of a more of a role. So they scrapped this rule and we, we were left with those three still very limited ways. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, one thing is to have rules, but what is actually the society thinks about it and the stigma or and whether you can like actually exercise those rules in a like healthy and safe manner. That's also another question. But then, yeah, then we have the ruling of the constitutional tribunal, which was basically faced with the question whether the one of the conditions, so the when the fetus life and health is endangered, whether that is also in accordance with our constitution. Mm-hmm. So the constitutional tribunal said, no, you know, guys, this is actually not good. We need to scrap this rule. So basically now abortion, safe access to abortion in Poland is also allowed in two cases. So when the woman's life or health is endangered and when the pregnancy is a result of criminal act. So we were once again struck with our rights and it doesn't really look good because although like, let's say there are ways to have a safe abortion, to execute them is very hard. Because, you know, you see how the law really works in practice. And when you have the rule that when the woman's life or health is in danger, if you're a woman, you end up in a hospital and there's a, even a possibility that the, your pregnancy can endanger your life. Doctors are so scared to actually take this decision to like proceed with abortion because the rules are so vague and actually they can face even criminal charges if they you know didn't do do the procedures right so there were even situations where in the news you were hear that the woman died because they didn't like provide her with abortion on time and they were like incredibly sad like stories where you know you you have a woman that was I don't know pregnant with her third child and she left like her husband and her kids because she was not allowed to have an abortion which she needed to have it because it was dangerous to her life so we're left in a situation when the doctors are basically paralyzed and they don't know what to do and it's it's leaves such a mess in a system because you don't know you know, you don't know who to blame. Do you blame those doctors that they don't do anything? Or do you blame the system that it doesn't like put forward really clear rules? So I think with that, I don't know, I kind of feel like it was a mistake of piss that they kind of went with that because you, it's really, it's very emotional topic. And when you see stories like that, it really hits you close to your heart because 
I think people can think whatever they want to like about abortion as a topic but like if you are faced in a situation when really like it's you you may die and leave your family just because there's such a paralyzing laws like this is really really worrying and I don't think it should take place has anyone sued either the government or a doctor because they've died so I think there are some because it's quite a recent thing so which what could happen is you know you can try to bring a case and I know there are cases that are pending in front of the European Court of Human Rights, which is quite good, right? Because it can bring the precedent to like the the whole, like all the members of the Council of Europe. So that would be very big. So I heard about those things, but those things take ages, ages. And those, in a way, are recent things because they're things from a year or two ago. So I think we might see emergence of those cases a bit later in years. So, yeah, I don't know, hopefully, but um, also quite, a, as, as you said, like why abortion is so political, why it brings so many emotions. And again, you don't know what is the climate of politics of the day. And yeah, it's a bit it's a bit hard to say. Do you think that all these emotional stories that you're seeing will have an effect on the election? I think so. I think they for sure have an impact because, again, I think whatever you as like like individual can have an opinion about abortion like if you hear stories like this it's really really moving and i really don't know whether it was a step into right direction well it was surely not a step in the right direction like generally but whether it was a step into right direction to piss party itself i i really sometimes doubt it because it brings such a massive protests i think i never seen something like that in poland that really in every city you really have those super massive protests like i'm also not from a big town and it was not like a one-day thing. You had like multiple days, people going in the streets, people going with their cars to protest. Like you couldn't pass the town because people were protesting in their cars. So it really brings this really massive public outrage. But, you know, it's also a thing. Like it was not the government who passed this decision, right? It was the constitutional tribunal. So they can always bring on the argument, be like, guys, it was actually not us. It's this, you know, we have the problem with those judges there. So... I think this paints a pretty interesting picture how they try to capture the institutions and use the institutions to actually bring on those changes. When these protests were happening, it really felt like all eyes were on Poland. And I think there was such like a, a wave of like solidarity with all women. Like, I think we we're all really, really proud of the women in Poland. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, you know, I mean, you touched on it a little bit already, but like, were there actually any any tangible outcomes from these strikes? Like, did it actually change anything and is this anger still present and like curious to know how it's going to play into the election coming up yeah this is a very interesting question because well legally nothing changed Mm. everything is the same but I think there is a one interesting change that happened namely the opposition parties started to having different approaches to what they think about abortion because one of the biggest opposition party, which is Koalicja Obywatelska, it's a civic platform, it's one of the biggest. It's also led by Donald Tusk, which is also quite well known in like European politics. So back in the days, they were always like, no, the compromise is good. We don't need to do anything else. We are not really for this 12 weeks period for safe abortion. And, and now in their political program, they're saying, yes, we will allow for the abortion until 12 weeks which I think this is the progress that was made because of those protests that actually the opposition party saw 
okay, there's some kind of, you know, consensus among the society that actually people are not that conservative in, in thinking about it. Maybe that's also something we should introduce in our programs. And it's good that they introduce it. Well, the other thing is whether they will actually do it. But then you have some kind of base to kind of hold them accountable, right? Like this is what you said during your election campaign. We hold you accountable. This is what women in Poland want. And well, this is what the human dignity should tell you what to do. So I think this is the, the biggest change that the, the, the parties are seeing, like this need for more progressive politics. I read a really interesting statistic that 47% of young women in Poland don't know who they're going to vote for yet. And this is for the age group of 18 to 29. And that they're convinced that like Poland is going in the wrong direction. I was curious to hear what you think about this and like what this kind of says about the young women, especially in light of like all of these protests. It's really interesting. I put some time to think about because we have kind of like two statements there, right? The mm -hmm. first is like almost half of young women in Poland do not know for whom they will vote. Mm -hmm. So I assume there is like this, okay, we will vote, but we don't know for who. Maybe it has to do something with the lack of representation in mm -hmm. politics because, you know, we did have a like female prime ministers. Well, we didn't have a female president, but we we're also quite young democracy. We didn't have many presidents in the first place. So that's also important context to keep in mind. But there is some kind of like, uh, you know, only like 28% of the representative in, in same, so the lower chamber, are women. So I assume there can be some kind of link made that women don't really see this representation, both in like the sitting in the upper chamber, lower chamber, and also like among the candidates they can choose from. Yeah, that's how it is. But I think it's kind of deeply rooted in the society, you know, Peter, he did their, its job. And I think, like, I think when I was younger, you could hear a lot of these arguments of like, yeah, girls don't really know nothing about politics. There's this tendency that the girls, women, uh, vote for whatever their partner or their dad votes for, and that they don't really know about politics. Like, there are those assumptions. So I assume that maybe if you were told things like this your whole life you're really questioning your ability to know what to, what to vote for and I think this is obviously not true because women know what they like what, what they need right you see from your experiences like we want a safe access to abortion we want good education we want a maternity leave that is well paid we want more like social programs that can support us like women really know but I think they need this extra empowerment maybe in this of like yes you're capable of making your own decisions. So maybe maybe those are those two factors, you know, that we see lack of representation, but why we see the lack of representation is because our society has like quite patriarchal um, schemes, history, and maybe in the future we'll see it changes. I actually already think it's changing because you really see a lot of like young women being on the list uh, to vote for the lower chamber, which is so cool. Like, you know, they're so young, like 22, 23. They, of course, have super, like, low numbers on a list and they don't have big budget to spend on their campaigns. But the mere fact that, you know, some 22 or 23-year-old is like, yes, I'm going to run for the office and I know I'm capable of it and I will do this, this and that. That's really, really, yeah, really heartwarming. And I think compared to the previous election, you really see emerge of those of those situations. It reminds me of, we did an episode on the Brazilian elections, 
we did two interviews on that and I think it was Bruna who was saying her sister might vote for Bolsonaro and I was like why and she said well because you know her boyfriend is kind of this type and so like the woman votes kind of with the man and then the other thing that played out in the Brazilian election we did an interview with an investigative journalist who was investigating the link between evangelical church and and this right movement and I think in Poland it sounds like you have these two things like the patriarchal kind of structure and then also the church does the church play a role in the politics openly or is it just there in the background as part of the culture well it for sure plays a role but I think the role is getting like smaller and smaller because more and more people are going away from the church because yeah it's it's very conservative and although you know we have very conservative politics it doesn't mean that the that the society in Poland is conservative like actually in fact most of the people support like uh, safe access to abortion to 12 weeks or most of the people also support partnerships like right gay marriage but like we don't have that because we have very conservative politics but still the society's more and more progressive and for sure, church plays a role, but it's getting smaller and smaller. And it's also, Poland is, in a way, also very polarized. Like, you know, you're going to have completely different impact on the church on like the, you know, on the west of Poland and the east of Poland, you know. I'm from the west side of Poland, so we, we really never had like super close relationship to the church. But when I went on the road trip with my parents to the east, like it's, you will see like a smallest village with 10 different churches there which is very bizarre for me. And, you know, it's some kind of way of keeping your community together. And so it's a, it's a, you wouldn't really need to look like super specifically on those communities. And now I reminded myself actually about one situation that kind of really pissed me off. A year ago or two years ago, I was in Krakow and I enter one of the churches, you know, because it was a pretty church, like, why not see it? And then I enter it and there is like this small exhibition with like a poster, like being against abortion, being against in vitro. I was like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I'm sorry, maybe you need to cut it out. But like, nope. but I was, but I was like, is this, is this for real? And, you know, it was a church right next to the Wawel Castle, which is like the most touristic, uh, like, place you can go in Krakow and I was like really and this is a church and it's and it's having like the small exhibition of we do not support uh I don't know kids being born out of this medical tubes or whatever and I was like are you are you actually for real yeah I, I really couldn't believe my eyes and I was like since when churches are places for this and especially that it was so central I was like Jesus Christ, I just feel so bad. Like if tourists comes in and see that that's how my country looks like, I I feel literally embarrassed because that's not how it is, right? But somehow the church likes to portray this this picture. But it's obviously not every church, right? You also have progressive priests and progressive churches. So it's really depends. So you've mentioned a lot about like lower chambers and upper chambers. Um, and I realized as you were talking, I actually don't know much about the voting or political structure in Poland. So I wondered if maybe you could just walk us through that really quickly, contextualize it a bit, and maybe also like who are the parties that are running? Because you've name dropped a couple of them and we've mentioned (laughs) some of them, but yeah, maybe you could contextualize it for us a bit. Yes. Okay, let's go. So today it's important to know that it's not only elections happening, but we also have a referendum going on in Poland, which first I'm going to tell you more about the, the elections and then we can talk about referendum because this is also 
very interesting topic. So in elections, you vote for Sejm and Senate. So the same is the lower chamber, which has like 460 seats. And although, you know, it's called lower chamber, it actually has more political and legislative powers than the upper chamber, than the Senate. So in same, so you can say, you can kind of see it's like this chamber that it has the most influence on politics and the legislative process in Poland. Uh, so in same, the candidates are <laughs> Koalicja Obywatelska, so it's a civic coalition. It's the main opposition parties, and it's led by the former European Council President Donald Tusk. So basically, it's a coalition of the smaller parties, but it's really not that important who forms them. It's like they're running as the civic coalition, and they're the biggest opposition party in Poland. Then we have Lewica, which are the lefts. And it's also, they're not that big, kind of between like 8 and 12%, let's say. And they're also kind of like this party that includes like those smaller left parties, but they run together as the lefts, basically. So the third party that we have, it's called the Third Way. And it's kind of a new party that emerged. It's like a coalition of two other parties, which is Poland 2050 and PSL. And PSL is like this, basically a party that always, always care more like about the, the farmers. And Poland to 2050 is kind of a new party that emerged during the last presidential elections, which was quite popular. So now they're running in a coalition. So to sum it up, we have like three main opposition parties. So the Civic Coalition, the Left and the Third Way. And then we have PIS, of course, which is the now the, the party that holds the majority. So the PIS, the, the Law and Justice Party. It's such a good <laughs> name. Kind of, yeah, it's so ironic. And also, you know, when you say PIS, it's also sound like peace. Like, I don't know. Like, always when I read it in the news, I'm like, oh my God, what do people might, must think about it? Um, <laughs> But PIS is essentially also, although it's a one big party, they also have like their own fractions within them, but they're mostly PIS, just the the law and justice. And then we have Confederacja, uh, which is, I don't want to say the word interesting because they're not interesting, but quite bizarre party. Like they're kind of this more on the right side of things. Like they're kind of economically libertarian, but like politically conservative. And they're super popular among young men. And the FDP, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can yeah, like like this. Um so so there they they call it like the Polish far right. I don't know if I would always call them far right, but you get the vibe, you get the vibe. Like so basically we have five parties that are running for the for the low end chamber. Those are the main parties. There are of course like some smaller committees and like some independent candidates, but you don't really hear much about them in the media and it's very unlikely there's going to be anything interesting emerging from that. So what you should know is like five main parties. Mm-hmm. Three of them are the, the opposition party, PIS and Confederacja. And then we have Senate. So the Senate is the upper chamber. And there we have very interesting situation where all the democratic opposition parties are running together. So basically, instead of having like multiple lists, they're running as a one list together. So for instance, when I go to vote in my hometown, in my list to Senate, I have either a candidate from the uh, Democratic Opposition Party or I have a candidate from PIS or also some from Confederacja, some independent. But the, the most important thing is that the Democratic Opposition is running together to Senate. And this already happened in the last election in 2019, when actually the Democratic opposition also won the majority in the Senate. So 
apparently is a good method that works to regain control from piss. And it was working quite well. The only backside of this is that Senate does not really have that super much of legislative and political power. So it's mm. nice, but uh, it will be better if they also regain the, the majority in same. Yeah, so those, those are the elections. And then also on the same day together with election, we also have a referendum, which is very, again, very bizarre thing because Poland is not Switzerland. Like we don't, referendums are not a thing in Poland. Like the last referendum we had had like 8% of turnout rate. You know, like it's not a thing. Like we just don't do it. It's just not working in our society. It's just not a thing. So basically, you know, some people, some scientists, some scholars are argued that this is quite a strategic move for PIS to, I don't even know what they want to do with it. They kind of want to paralyze the, the, the whole like election day because you need to also imagine that basically now the committee, when, they, when they're counting votes and counting votes in Poland are still happening by hand. So you have a committee that is, they have three lists basically to count. They have same Senate and now also referendum. To count. And what's the referendum on? Very good question. There are four questions on referendum, and I have English translations of them because it's really, uh, wow. Okay, so the first question is the sale of state asset to foreign entities leading to the loss of Poles control over strategic sector of the economy. So you need to say whether you were like in favor or against. Everyone's against <laughs> raising the retirement age, including the restoration of the increased retirement age for men and women to 67, <laughs> eliminating the barrier on the border between the Republic of Poland and the Republic of Belarus. Because, yeah, you know, they oh. build the wall right now in the border. And the fourth question, my personal favorite, accepting thousands of illegal immigrants from the Middle East and Africa in accordance with the forced relocation mechanism imposed by the European bureaucracy. Everyone's against that. You heard the results here first. I just want to say. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, they're drafted in a way that you kind of like, it kind of makes you feel like, am I anti-Poland? You know, like they are drafted in such a populistic way to think like, yeah. like, of course, like I care about the well-being of my country, right? But those are like a perfect example of how to write like super populistic statements. Yeah, they're very leading questions. Exactly. Like you kind of know what to say, like straight away. And they're very, mm. yeah, they're very loaded. They have very, like, very hostile language. And we like, yeah. you don't even know what, what is the purpose of this referendum. And they kind of introduced it in a way of like, okay, guys, let's do referendum, you know. But that's all referendums, right? Well, it's a one referendum with four questions. So I think usually what referendum has is like a main theme, right? And then you kind of like ask more specific question or do you support this and that but yes. no <laughs> do you want to be in the EU or not like in yeah. England we have exactly but all of those questions are so interesting because they are maybe representative and maybe you can talk a bit more about that of the main concerns of the election right now the yeah. main political discussions and stuff yeah that's a it's a it's actually a good question whether they represent like the main concerns whether they're the main concerns of the party or whether they're the main concerns actually of the citizens. Because also, like, if I can just say one thing about the referendum, because I feel like you hear a lot about the elections in the news, foreign news, but you don't really hear about the referendum. I just want to say that when I go to elections, like, I actually need to have in mind 
that I'm not going to participate in referendum, that I made like a conscious choice to say, no, I'm not taking the card to referendum. Because first of all, like I also don't want to contribute for, you know, the overload of like counting the votes in the committees. But the second thing is if the referendum has over 50%, it's valid. Ah. So if it's in the, with the elections, obviously you kind of go to the over 50% turnout rate. Which I also, you know, I, I don't want those questions. Like, I know what I will say, right? Like, but I don't want this ever to be like a discussion. Like, I just don't want this referendum to exist. So I, I think it's quite bizarre that going to elections, you kind of need to have this strategy in your head. Because what it's doing is so smart because it's putting you, it's making you think in a binary way, yes or no, about do we want this, like, wall? do we want thousands of migrants yeah. or not? Yeah. Like, it's making every single person from the question think in a certain way. It's a method of propaganda or, like, thought mm. manipulation, not just in the question, but the actual fact that they make mm. the question and make everyone think in this way. Great choice not to take is, part in it. Is this a, a movement of, like, people not taking part in the referendum for a similar reason like yes. is this something that's yes. brewing yes 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 oh. definitely i don't think in the media like i don't i don't know if the opposition like the parties if the candidates they can say it openly i don't know if that's you know politically correct but like in a like a civil society movement it's quite big it's really like mm -hmm. you know the most like associations of lawyers or you know the like activists like circles um it's it's full on instagram of like how not to take a part in referendum or or why you shouldn't take part in referendum so i would say it's a quite strong movement and i think like it's also consensus like among like my family among, among my friends it's really like a thing that you're like okay, I need to remember that in this moment, I need to say no to referendum and I need to make sure I signed in the right place so they don't count me in to the, you know, to the turnout rate. And it's a really interesting twisting of, you know, an established legal, legal form, like you said, Switzerland. When you think of Switzerland, you think of democracy. Everyone is taking part in this like super inclusive democracy because of the referendum. But in this sense, you know, they've taken something and they've, they're they using it in a different exactly. way. It's very interesting. So as I said, we, we just don't have the culture of referendum. Like when we have the referendum to enter European Union, the turnout rate was like 53, 54%. And as I said, you need to have a 50% to have the valid referendum. So like it was so, you know, such a small margin. Like we just, there is no, like it just doesn't make any sense. And it's interesting, there's this question about the, European bureaucracy <laughs> yeah. and the EU and then there's a lot of like anti-German anti-EU yeah. stuff that ties to like the question that you wanted to ask like what is like the main issues like what is kind of at stake so I think like I would always say that what is at stake it's the democratic institutions and whatever comes whatever is next it also ties back to it and because, of course, there are other issues like inflation, like the border crisis, the Belarusian border, migration. Now there's also some kind of weird discourse to not really be supportive of Ukraine. But side note, I think it's just like the political strategy, you know, for now to be a bit more like skeptical to also for the PIS party to gather the people who are also a bit like anti, like supporting Ukraine. So I think it's just a periodic thing. It's very sad to see. But I think it's just politics. Then, of course, you know, the like the relationship with the US and Germany, like, like, 
like I this is it's I know it's a serious thing but like sometimes I just think about our politics and I just can't believe it because obviously there is this very like sometimes anti-German narrative going on but they only do it when they need it you know like the Swiss party really likes to use this narrative for instance they say like Donald Tusk is a German agent who's sent to Poland to undermine our values and impose whatever German influence like it's it's sometimes you turn on the public tv in Poland and this is a narrative you get there so it's yeah it's 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 all politics right there's one thing what they say and then the other thing what they do when you know they're in some kind of like diplomatic summits and they need the support of the German government right it's a quite bizarre situation you know they they do whatever they need to get the votes in but you also see sometimes like this sympathy towards Germany again depending on what because like our constitutional court really likes to recall the example of German constitutional court that with the cases around the European Union law which I think like when you study it you know it's a completely two different things so I, I absolutely I really don't get how like the, the lawyers in Poland can make this argument of like, oh yeah, but if uh, our constitutional court is undermining EU law, that's the same thing that the German constitutional court did. It's not the same. It was never the same. But they, they like to recall being like, oh yeah, we're like the Germans. Isn't that bad? It really depends on what they talk about. It's uh, mm. it's all very, very weird populistic politics. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, I did want to ask you about, you know, your studies and your work. Why did you decide to actually study law and you're particularly specializing in European law? Is there a Polish reason for that? <laughs> I mean, it's a good question. When I was younger, I always had some kind of, you know, of course, like being against like social injustice and all of this like cliche story. But I don't think I really wanted to study law in Poland. Well, first of all, my grades were so bad, like I would never get to a law school in Poland. That's probably the biggest reason. Like, I don't know. I was just like, I was never super passionate about academia back then because I always had this very like super conservative image of it and then we also met when I was in my gap year in Berlin and I get I met so many people that kind of opened my eyes more towards like the European approach to it and international approach to it and then I found out that you can actually study something like European and international law and it's so fascinating because it's not only like sitting in the books and reading what are the rules but but actually seeing how the politics impacted or how the the sociology impacts it. Like it's so much more than just law. And then, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you get this excitement in your stomach when you think about it. And I did my bachelor in international European law at University of Groningen in the Netherlands. So I was studying both like European law and international law. And then I kind of saw also because of what was happening in Poland, I think I saw more potential in European law to actually use it as a tool to do something against it. So that's why I also went more to it like during my master's degree, which I just started last month. Congratulations. And now you're like very into it and you've even started an organization with some other people called Our Rule of Law. And it's a student-led initiative focused on finding meaningful ways for students to engage in ongoing rule of law crises within the European Union. This seems very much tied to 
yes. Poland. And yeah, do you want to talk about what your aims are, why you started it, yeah. how it's going? Yes, it's something so funny how life can take you, right? When I went from like not even knowing if I want to do law to this, but basically during the first year of my study, so in the first year of my bachelor, together with three friends from my class, so Zuza, Ellen and Tekla, we started this initiative basically a bit inspired by the rule of law crisis in Poland. And I guess there are multiple reasons why we were interested in the first place. So Zuza and I are both Polish. Then Elen is from Georgia and Tekla is from Denmark. So I guess we were all have different kind of nationality ties to it. Like for instance, for Tekla, it was more like, oh, I like, why do we have such a fragmentation in the EU? Why we have a countries that undermine the legitimacy of EU? Like I... I care so much about it as a like, you know, Danish citizen to maintain it. But then there was also another aspect, I guess, of being a law student, of having like this sense of duty and kind of sense of frustration of like, why do we sit there not talking about actually what is happening in the world? It was uh, like, when I look at it from now, I'm like, yeah, of course, because you were a first year law student. Like, of course, for now, they want to give you the basics to later work with it. But I guess it was kind of this, frustration of like why we don't talk enough about it why more people are not concerned of like what is happening in Poland because this is our niche of like rule of law in Europe but it's 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 connected to so many more issues that you see in the world so again like this frustration of like why students don't care enough about it you have such a powerful tool in your hand as law international European law why don't you try to use it in a good way, because I always like to say that, you know, Viktor Orban was a law student once too. <laughs> he has a PhD in law, you know, like those guys really know what they're doing. Like they did study it. And who knows, maybe my classmate is the next Viktor Orban. Who knows? You know, but, you know, this sense of duty as a, as a law student. So basically we reach out to one of the professors at the University of Groningen. His name is John Morain, super active in a sphere of European democracy and rule of law. He's now a fellow in Princeton, so super smart guy. And we basically said to him, listen, we are so frustrated. We want to do something. Do you want to organize something with us? And we had this super huge idea of like, we want to organize a festival in law school that's going to be focused only on Poland and the Polish rule of law crisis. And he said, okay, yeah, let's do this. And he was so nice. When you come across mentors like this, it's also super empowering and making a lot of things possible. So basically what we did was like this two-day-long festival, we literally called it a festival, our rule of law festival, that was focused on the Polish uh, rule of law crisis. And we invited guests from Poland. So judges, journalists, attorneys, academics that came to Groningen for two days to talk what is actually happening in Poland and why students should care about it. And we kind of saw that there is some kind of interest in it among the student mm -hmm. community. So I guess it was, we never had a plan for it to be like a long-term thing, but we kind of saw that there is this interest. So we take it. And since then we're very like engaged in what is like happening in Europe. We like our latest project uh, happened last March. Well, it was actually an academic mentorship program, which ran from January till March this year, where we gathered 45 bachelor students from all over Europe. It was not limited to the EU citizens, but essentially to students that were studying in European universities and under guidance of mentors, professors, like NGO chairs, political legal advisors. 
they spent three months drafting policy proposals, tackling different areas of European rule of law crisis. So policy proposal regarding academic freedom, media freedom, judicial independence, European political parties. Uh, there were like 11 different themes. And in March, they met for like a two-day uh, kind of bootcamp in Brussels, where they presented their like policy proposals to real-life policymakers, political advisors, member of the European Parliament, people from the European Commission, and they got the feedback on their proposals. Then they got some time to implement those feedback. And at the end, we published this kind of 250-page-long report encompassing all of those proposals. And it was really, really incredible experience for me because actually this report was later handed in in the European Commission in a unit that actually do work on the rule of law. And we got to go there in person. Yeah, you know, like, of course, when students draft something, some of them are like, yeah, guys, this is not really possible. But actually, the people from the commission, like, they actually read it and they say, yeah, this is, a, yeah, this is good. Like, maybe, you know, it's going to be useful for our work. So really cool. And it's like really nice to see new ideas to solve European problems, because I think there are a lot of European problems. So I just have two questions. One is, can we watch those talks from the Polish? Um, Did you yes, film them? Yes, I just filmed them. I never thought someone going to ask me for it, but it's actually on our YouTube. It's called Our Rule of Law. You can watch those talks. And then we have a website where we like to publish the report. And basically, I think what we try to do is also, you know, connect kind of this the future rule of law defenders with the current rule of law defenders. So we try to like demolish this line between the younger and the older generation and academia especially, so they can like work together and see the possibilities to work on like the European rule of law crisis or democracy, because it's a huge topic. It's a huge topic and really needs so much like you motivated people. Amazing. We'll link to all of that stuff in our newsletter if anyone's interested, but like, I'm personally really interested. And yeah, this question about the EU is like, it seems with a lot of elections and there's a lot of nationalist speak and things are happening right now. Do you think the EU is getting stronger or weaker? What do you think in like another 10 years? Will it still I be? Think, I think stronger in a way, because I think the last... Okay, so we, we did have a discussion on the European rule of law and democracy before, but the amount of material let's say the amount of content the amount of judgments and the amount of political decisions that happened in the past like eight ten years with the like this emerge of the polish rule of law crisis and how differently now eu law looks at things as values it's really fascinating how we actually think this crisis kind of led to this more care in the european union of like yeah we actually need to put more emphasis on democracy, on the rule of law, on human rights. And we see like lately, for instance, I don't know, the European budget was conditional to the rule of law violation. Like that's a very big thing. And I think that that does make the EU stronger and kind of helps it develop. And I think this is especially interesting with human rights because I feel like because those topics like rule of law and democracy are so complicated sometimes this link is missed but it's in a way human rights are more things that i don't know like people understand right like violation of my rights but what is happening in human rights is that you have the individual against the state right and if you have a state that is 
arbitrary abusing power or a state that does not have strong institutions, then you know what? Your human rights really don't matter because like what you're going to do. So I really think those rule of law and democracy are really so such at the core to later exercise any further rights like you know, human rights, minority rights, LGBT rights, a climate crisis, like none of this is going to be really properly enforced if we don't have a strong institution and strong governments to monitor that in the first place. Damn. <laughs> that was such a good explanation. Thank you. Yeah, it's so important, the things you're doing. Was there anything you wanted to add? What do you hope for is the result today? Yeah. I don't know, because as I said at the beginning, like, I'm a bit anxious. So there are many things that can happen. PIS can win, which we don't want. What else can happen is that PIS forms a coalition with Confederacia because no one else is going to form a coalition with PIS, like no way. So that's also not so good. And a lot of, like there's some political scientists says that this can happen, but I don't know. I would, I'm a bit skeptical whether this will happen, but uh, I don't know yet. And then there, there's also, of course, the option that the opposition will win. So that's, of course, what I would like. The only thing when the opposition wins is we still need to pay attention to Poland. We need to see whether all the say bad things that happened during PIS, that they will be taken care of and they will be restored, that the courts will be restored, that the abortion rules will be also restored. It's going to be a very long process and it's not that easy, but we for sure need to keep the politicians accountable, whether they're from PIS or opposition. That's very, I think, important to remember. My biggest scare is that no government will be formed because of like the the votes, you know, the distribution of the votes and the, like the ability to actually form the government and that the new elections will be called. I don't know how likely this is, but it's somewhat scary for me because I feel like if there is, will be even a possibility for calling a new elections, I'm scared that PIS will really <laughs> go further with their un- undermining of the, the institution and will do whatever it takes in their power to actually, you know, size the power. So that's a bit pessimistic. I hope this won't happen. (laughs) I really don't know. I'm actually going back to Poland to vote. So I'll be in Poland for elections. So I really, I really hope for the best. Uh, We just really need to pay attention. How long does the counting usually take? Like when can results be expected? Because if it's done manually, right? Like I assume that on the evening, this evening, there won't be results already. It's going to take some time. And then... How long do coalition talks take? You know, in Germany, it can take weeks for a government to form because they're, you know, negotiating with one another. Is it kind of similar in Poland? So about the counting of the votes. So, well, you will have the exit polls at like 9 p.m. But I think probably it's going to be very, you know, close call because that was also the case in the last presidential elections that was super close call so the committees have 24 hours to count the votes and that's actually another scare is that the committees won't like count them on time it's a big scare from actually voters abroad that there are so many people that want to vote abroad for example in the netherlands it's really they need to add more and more committees because so many people are registering to vote and there is this scare that because of the time limit the votes won't be counted in time and that means all the votes will basically going to be thrown away. So I hope there's going to, yeah, it's it's a very, it's a, another scare. But it also has to do something with that, I guess, that more and more people really go to vote. Like there is a big turnout, like you can, you really see a, a big jump in turnout because I think like in 2015, when PIS came to power, the turnout rate was 51%. 
And then in 2019, when PIS won again, it was 62%. So it's, it, I think it's a quite jump from the, you know, turnout. So I think now it's, I hope, I really hope it's going to be even higher. So yeah, so they have 24 hours to count. I hope everything going to go well there. And then as the talks of the coalition, I don't know actually what is the political process there, but I can imagine that since the topic is very, you know, it's, it's democracies at stake, right? So I think that the coalition, the opposition party, sorry, they really do have this incentive to actually form the government rather quickly. And I really hope that will be the case. If, if they win and they are not able to do that, I will be so disappointed. But I really don't think that will be the case. I think everyone is quite motivated there on the opposition side to to get this done as soon as possible. I'm just mm-hmm. so I'm still stuck on the fact that they're just like if they don't count them in 24 hours, it's like there's a lot of political in Berlin voting it that we know we know a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's it's yeah that's it's really like it's a bit hard to say whether this is a rationalized scare but you really see so many like committees voting like filling up so quickly and every committee has like a limit of I think thousand two hundred five hundred votes to count like this that's their limit and in the Netherlands you see some committees are like two thousand people already registered mm-hmm. so they really keep adding and adding. Although I really, I really, I'm not sure, but I think only from the votes from abroad, it's like to count for 24 hours, but I'm actually not, not so, not that super sure about it. I was actually last week, I was helping to organize like an election meeting with one of the opposition candidates for Senate. His name is Adam Bodnar and he, he was the former uh, ombudsman for human rights in Poland mm-hmm. during the opposition. And he's also like a, a professor. So first we had like a lecture with him in Leiden and then he had like the political meeting in Amsterdam because he is running on the list that people from abroad also have. So mm-hmm. he's like super heavily advocating, you know, putting the, like, I don't know how you say, like putting the request to open more committees for people to vote and... Yeah, it's, I don't know, like I was thinking about it and how crazy it is that people just count the votes by hand. <laughs> like, I was like, what is that? Like, you know, we have like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was yeah. just like, I couldn't like imagine it in my head, but apparently that's what's happening. And of course, they're also, because you have the committee members that are doing it, but you also have like a lot of observers coming in to actually make sure that, that all the rules of procedure are maintained and all of that so wow we hope it goes really well yeah today yeah and thank you so much for informing us about the polish election about the rule of law and democracy and we'll link to all of your amazing stuff in our (laughs) newsletter i can't wait to check them out it's so interesting and you've just opened a whole (laughs) new door of knowledge for us so thank you so much for taking the time to explain this and good luck with everything like i'm sure you're gonna see anya in the future be like a real badass lawyer or something yeah Yeah. thank you so much good luck with everything (laughs) yeah and thank you for caring about the elections i really really appreciate that and i think yeah everyone who listened to your podcast i really hope i really do think it's a very important election for europe so pay attention if you like the show please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts you can also help us by supporting us on patreon for as little as four euro a month visit patreon.com slash misinformed
For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.